This is your morning wake-up call on Sports Country. Grab a cup of coffee and hang with us every weekday morning for the latest news, sports, and other things going on around the world and in your backyard. Now, here's your host, Gene Gums. Well, good morning, everybody. It is six minutes past nine o'clock here in Hayesville, North Carolina. Welcome to a Thursday morning wake-up call on Sports Country Radio. It is a chilly one here in uh, down on the Georgia-North Carolina border. We are expecting a little bit of snow tonight. I know up in the northeast they're talking about uh, a few inches of snow today, and you guys can have that. We'll take our little dusting that we're planning to get today. That'll be just enough. Thank you very much. Uh, welcome. And uh, we got lots to get to this morning. Of course, uh, COVID news is everywhere. Um, and uh, it has hit the tennis world now. Novak Djokovic, we talked about this yesterday, uh, where he had been given an exemption uh, to go to the Australia Open, or so he thought. He got an exemption from the state of Victoria um, but the problem is, is that that does not mean he gets into the country. He assumed that because uh, Victoria had given him the go-ahead to play in the tournament, despite the fact that he is not vaccinated or will at least not disclose his vaccination status, gave him free reign. Here's the problem. He flew into Australia, and the Australian authorities, the federal authorities, said, no, no, I don't think so. And so he has been uh, quarantined. He is in a hotel right now, and he is uh, probably headed for a court date today. It's very similar to if he had flown into, say, Boston to play in a tournament in Boston. And, you know, Boston had a city mandate that said that uh, you have to be vaccinated to participate. Uh, and uh, But the federal uh, authorities, the TSA, would say, no, wait a minute. Immigration would say, uh, you're not vaccinated. You can't come in because we have a federal law that says you have to be. So that's essentially what it was. It's it's state versus federal here. And so there was some miscommunication between jo, uh, Djokovic's uh, camp and uh, Australia. And a lot of people are screaming, you know, that it's not fair and he's being treated differently and yada, yada. Look, here's the deal. He's being treated differently to even have a chance to play because he's Novak Djokovic, because he's the number one ranked player in the world, because he's won 20 major titles. You know, people are going to give him the benefit of the doubt. But as I said yesterday, he shouldn't be. At the end of the day, the, the, the rule is the rule. And why should we be changing the rule just because you're a great athlete? You know, and a lot of what we have seen, uh, Rafael Nadal, who is, uh, you know, he and Djokovic, arguably the best two tennis players in the world right now. Rafael Nadal said, hey, look, the rules are the rules. And if you're not, if if you know if you're not following the guidelines, then you can't play. You know, and several others have said the same thing. But of course, you know the Serbian people are, are up in arms, and you know every Tom, Dick, and Harry's got something to say. But look, at the end of the day, we follow the rules. You know, and and so. Uh, 
and, and here's the other problem with it is, Djokovic kind of screwed himself here. Uh, well, maybe not himself, but the the government of Australia recognized and said, look, one of the things that our border force does in Australia is to act on intelligence to direct their attention to potential arrivals that could be a problem. And he said, when you get people making public statements about what they say they have and they're going to do, they draw significant attention to themselves. He said, anybody who does that, whether they're a celebrity, a politician, a tennis player, they can be expected, you know, they can expect to be asked questions when they get there. And if you don't have the proper documentation that the government says you need to have, well, then there's consequences. Um, and he thought he, you know, he felt that he'd have a medical exemption. And his exemption was run by two independent panels of experts. And, you know, uh, it was supposed to allow him to play, but the Australian government says, no, it's not good enough for us. So now um, it goes to court. Here's what I think probably ends up happening. I think he spends a few days in quarantine. He goes to court. It would not surprise me if they allow him to still play. What they might do is they might say, you are quarantined to the hotel and you are not allowed to leave the hotel for any reason other than to go directly to the venue, play your match, and then go back to the hotel. And if he wants to play bad enough, you know, that's what he will abide by. Now, it could be that the courts will say, no, the rule's a rule, and, and, and frankly, that's what I would do. What the hell do I know? But um, look, Kyrie Irving, and we're going to talk about him in a second. Kyrie Irving was not able to play for the Brooklyn Nets this year until yesterday because the Nets finally decided, well, <laughs> something's better than nothing. But he couldn't play because they play in Brooklyn, which is part of the city of New York. And the city of New York has a mandate that says you must be vaccinated. And, you know, so that meant that he could not play in New York. So the Nets didn't want a part-time player at the beginning of the season, so they said, well, just go home. <laughs> um, and now it's funny how all of a sudden the Nets have a three-game slide, right? All of a sudden they, they, they lose three games in a row, and all three of them are in New York. And suddenly, geez, maybe having a part-time player in Kyrie Irving is not a bad idea. So Kyrie Irving plays yesterday for the first time this season. And what does he do? He throws in 22 points, has a few steals, and helps the Nets come back to beat the Indiana Pacers 129-121. to 121. Now, look, you know, New York City has a vaccine mandate. Not every city, most cities in the country don't. And the next road opponents for 
the Nets don't have such a mandate, so he will be able to play in those 11 games. He still can't play in Brooklyn, but he can still play on the road. And look, give him credit. I mean, you know, you're not playing all season. You sat out the first 35 games, and all of a sudden you just show up and, eh, I'll, just, I'll drop 20. You know, there's no doubt that Kyrie Irving's a talented dude, but Kyrie Irving is a very polarizing figure. He's one of those guys that needs to learn to shut his mouth, kind of like Aaron Rodgers. That's a whole other thing. We'll get to that in a minute, too. But, you know, sometimes you're just better off just shutting up. And, you know, but Kyrie Irving, look, he said, look. And he, he was, he last night, he said, look, I knew what the consequences were when I did this, and I still know what they are. He said, but right now, he says, I'm going to take it a day at a time, enjoy the time that I get to play, um, and then we'll go from there. He said, however it looks later in the season, we'll go, you know, we'll, we'll figure that out then. And it will be interesting. You know, let's say that this continues for the rest of the year with Kyrie Irving. And, uh, you know, look, the Nets are, are, are one of the three or four best teams in the NBA right now. What happens if they make the playoffs – and they'll probably be able to get through their first-round match with just having him as a part-time player just on the road. But what happens if, let's say they have a, a series in the playoffs and he can't play home games because of the vaccine mandate, and what happens if this team that they're playing on the road, that city has a vaccine mandate, so that would mean he wouldn't be available at all for that series. What happens then? Do, do the Nets put pressure on him to get a vaccine? Say, hey, Kyrie, look, you know, we've paid you all season. You know, uh, you basically got to take most of the year off. We need you now, buddy. We need you to, uh, you know, uh, we get it, but we need you to get a vaccine because we need you in this series. Will he do it? Or will he even think to himself, maybe I should get this done just so that I can play? You know, and look. People aren't dying from vaccines. You know, the, the, the idiots that are out there saying vaccines kill people is just are, are just they're just that they're idiots. You know, I understand that everybody has it. And I think I, I think the objection that a lot of people have to this, this isn't about the vaccine. This is about somebody, the federal government telling people what they have to do. Look, we Americans uh, don't like anybody telling us what to do, right? Um, I get it. I don't like to be told what to do. Matter of fact, I'm one of those people that in, in a lot of cases will dig in my heels when somebody's trying to tell me what to do. But when it came to this vaccine, this wasn't, you know, look, it I wasn't mandated to take the vaccine. It was my choice to take the vaccine. And I felt that it was, well, for, for a few reasons. Number one, I don't want to die. It, I don't, you know, I like living. It's kept me alive. And, you know, as far as I know, I have never contracted COVID. Now, maybe, maybe I, maybe I was exposed to it. Maybe, who knows? Maybe I have the antibodies. Maybe I'm, I had it and I may be symptomatic. I've never been tested because I've never had a symptom. But I've been vaccinated, fully vaccinated, and I'm going to get my booster this week. So, and, and we're finding that people that have been vaccinated and get the booster, by and large, even if they get it, you know, do they get sick a little bit? Yes. But is it killing them? No. 
and 75% of the people going to hospitals now for this are people that are unvaccinated. And those of us that are vaccinated aren't going to die. Be in the, of course, there will be the odd one that will. But by and large, it's going to help us survive. So that was number one. Okay, I don't want to die. But number two for me was I felt that it was my responsibility as an American citizen, as a human being, to try to protect not just myself but the rest of the population when we were talking about the whole herd immunity thing. In order for the the pandemic to kind of go away, we needed 75% or, you know, thereabouts of the American population to get vaccinated. And then there was a chance we'd have herd immunity and this kind of this thing would just kind of it wouldn't disappear, but it would become more like the common cold or more like the flu. And it wouldn't be as virulent. It wouldn't be killing people. So I felt it was kind of my duty to do this. But I get the I don't want to be told what to do. And some people are more stubborn about that than others. And and but but to me, this there was a big difference between somebody telling me, uh, you know, that you can't paint your house blue like, you know, like you have in homeowners associations where they'll tell you what color your house can be. Uh, I one of the things I always said, I will never live in any kind of a community where there's an HOA fee where they have the right to tell me what I can do to my house on the outside uh, or what I can put on my lawn or any of that. Uh, baloney. I'll never do that. I won't have anybody telling me what to do. And not only are you going to tell me what to do, I'm going to pay you an HOA fee for the privilege of having you tell me what to do. I'm not going to do that. Um, so, but, but, so I get that part of it. You know, and then there are others that just are anti-vaxxers because they, you know, the, that whole uh, thing about, well, vaccines cause autism. By the way, a study that was debunked a long time ago. And not only that, this vaccine isn't even like the old vaccines. This is a completely different one. The mRNA, where it affects the, the you know, it affects your at the cellular level. And is all it is doing is sending a message out to your body to create antibodies for this particular virus it's not putting the weakened virus into your system it's not doing any of that it's completely different but people can't get past that and the fact that people are still talking about that that uh study about uh, autism and vaccines still drives me nuts but so look novak djokovic kyrie irving you don't want to get vaccinated, and you want to, you know, fine. You know, and, and Djokovic actually pisses me off a little bit more than Kyrie Irving. Kyrie Irving was just like, look, I don't want to get vaccinated. It's just my personal choice. I don't want to do it. You know, okay. Djokovic not only, you know, has spoken out against the vaccine. It was like, you know, he's he's been very vocal about, no, we shouldn't be doing this. So he pisses me off a little bit more. So I have I have probably have uh, – less empathy for him than I do for Kyrie Irving. Kyrie Irving knew the consequences of not doing it, but he said, look, it's my personal choice. I don't want to do it. I, I realize I'm not going to be able to play. I accept that. Djokovic is talking out against the virus and then still thinks that he should be able to play because he's Novak Djokovic. Oh, it doesn't work that way. So, uh, 
again, I think that at the end of the day, the courts are going to allow him to play. They're going to quarantine him, and they're going to say, you got to get all your meals and everything right there. Uh, and uh, they're going to, you know, and the tennis tournament officials, if they really want him there to defend his title, they will make arrangements to have him quarantined when he comes to the facility. If he wants to practice, it'll be on a, a quarantined, uh, you know, segregated court, that kind of thing. You know, it, it all depends on how badly the tournament officials want him there. But I think that's what will happen. We'll see. We'll know more probably later on uh, today. Uh, the other COVID thing, uh, not sports-related, but still a big deal, uh, you know, for people that are uh, interested in music. The Grammys have postponed uh, their ceremony. It was uh, set to be January 31st at the uh, Staples Center. Oh, oh, by the way, it's not the Staples Center. What the hell is it called now? Uh, it's some kind of, uh, yeah, I don't even remember it. It's the, uh, I don't know, some kind of crypto thing. It's got some new name. I don't even know what the hell it is. Uh, but so they, uh, they are not, uh, oh, Crypto.com Arena. That's what it is. Crypto.com Arena. Got to love that. Good Lord. Uh, anyway, uh, so they have postponed it uh, indefinitely. Uh, if you remember last year, um, they postponed them. Then they moved it to like the middle of March. There was almost nobody there. It was mostly just the nominees. And a lot of the performances were all taped so that there was not many people there. You know, part of the, the, the allure of the Grammys are the live performances. And sometimes you get some, uh, you know, mix. Uh, you get some duets of people that uh, you, you wouldn't expect. And, you know, it's kind of fun. Although I have to be honest, I don't watch the Grammy as much as I used to because with the music now, I just <laughs> I, I, I the old man get off my lawn. But uh, you know this this overtaking of the hip hop music and stuff like that, I can't take it. I cannot take it. So I wasn't going to be watching them anyway. Uh, you know, I always watch to see who wins, but uh, I uh, not watch, but I always check out the results. But I was not going to watch anyway. Uh, but for those of you that were, the Grammys will not be on on January thirty first, and and we will see. Uh, when that will happen. Um, last thing before we get to uh, our uh, our first break here of the show, uh, the Antonio Brown thing uh, continues to dominate the NFL news, and Antonio Brown fired back yesterday. You know, he had been kind of acting a little strange with the whole thing with the cab and then showing up at a Nets game and this and that. And But yesterday he went on the offensive. And uh, and I'm sure he was advised to do that by his manager. Uh, so yesterday there was a statement that was released by his attorney. And basically ripping the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And according to his attorney, there is an MRI that was performed on Monday on Antonio Brown's ankle that shows broken bone fragments, a ligament tear, and cartilage loss. Now, Antonio Brown has said all along that he had an injured ankle. This wasn't about not wanting to play. This was about not being able to play and that he had tried to gut it out and it just hurt too much. And if if this MRI actually did indeed happen, and look, you know, with HIPAA laws, you know, that he doesn't have to reveal that. But if, if an MRI was actually done and he can produce this MRI and show that his ankle 
was in that condition, it doesn't look good for the Tampa Bay Bucks, but it looks even worse for Bruce Arians, the head coach. You know, because Antonio Brown went on to say, he said, you know, look, I tried to play, uh, but the pain was extreme. I took a seat on the sidelines, and my coach came up to me very upset and shouted at me, what's wrong with you? He said, I told him that it's my ankle. He said he then ordered me to get onto the field. Uh, he, I, he said, I told him, coach, I can't. He didn't call for medical attention. He said he just shouted at me, you're done, and then did the swipe across the neck, like crutting his throat and saying, you're done. And uh, and so basically he said, look, the coach was telling me that if I didn't play hurt, then I was done with the Bucks." So he said, I didn't quit on this team. I was cut. I was fired. Um, and he said, look, he said, uh, because of my commitment to the team, you know, I relented to pressure directly from my coach to play injured. He said, I suited up and the staff injected me what I now know was a powerful and sometimes dangerous painkiller that the NFL Players Association has warned against using. He said, I gave it my all. I played until it was clear that I could not use my ankle to safely perform my responsibilities. Now, look, I took some shots at Antonio Brown, and I still think what he did was ridiculous. Even if all this stuff that he said was clear, it, or really did happen the way he said it. And we don't know. Like It's the Antonio Brown filter. We've heard the Bruce Arians filter. We don't know what the truth is. And I'm sure there are players on that sideline that know exactly what happened. They're never going to tell us because they are not going to throw their head coach under the bus because they know if they do that, that's suicide. And there are people that also are not going to want to throw Antonio Brown under the bus if indeed he was, you know, telling us some he's telling us something that here that's not exactly true but if what antonio brown says is true and i don't know how we ever prove that and i mean he could produce that mri and and you know if we validate that that mri is true and he his ankle is as bad as they say it is it's kind of hard to see where Bruce Arians could insist on him playing and Arians come out of this looking good. You know, I mean, so I'd love to see those MRIs or I'd love to have another doctor look at those MRIs. But if it's true, you know, this could go badly for Bruce Arians, to be honest with you. Um, so, but you know, now the, the way he left the game aside, which again, I thought was kind of a, a clown show and I thought it was completely unnecessary and it was, Hey, look at me, look at me. And I, and you know, we all know Antonio Brown's history, you know, and I, you know, I do believe that Antonio Brown does need some help, but it is also possible 
that there is some truth in what Antonio Brown says here. So we have to give him the benefit of the doubt. We're, we may never know the truth. And, and the one, uh, last thing I saw Antonio Brown said this morning is, hey, look, I'm getting surgery. I'll be fine after surgery, and I'm looking forward to next season. <clears throat> again, the question remains, who's going to want to touch this guy unless, again, he produces these MRIs. We find out that he was indeed very hurt. Maybe there will be some teams that say, hmm, maybe Bruce Arians overreacted because Bruce Arians never really wanted Antonio Brown on that team to begin with. He relented to pressure from Tom Brady, and maybe he felt this was his chance, you know, because Antonio Brown had gotten himself, you know, suspended for a few games because of the whole fake, fake vaccine card thing. You know, and maybe that was, you know, the, the, the Bruce Arians had said enough and this was his excuse. I don't know. But I still don't know who's going to want to touch this guy. I really, really don't. So uh, we'll see. But, but again, it doesn't look good for the Bucks right now uh, if what Antonio Brown is telling us is true really is you know and and we we may never know it is 31 minutes past the hour we're going to take a break back in a minute you're listening to the wake up call on sports country it is 33 minutes past the hour here on a thursday morning in north carolina welcome back to the wake up call so uh, pete abraham uh, my buddy from the boston globe had a uh, article in uh, the paper this morning talking about whether or not David Ortiz is going to be able to make the Hall of Fame uh, on his first opportunity on the ballot. And, um, you know, if you look at the early results, and and, uh, there have been, uh, what did he say, 134 members uh, of the Baseball Writers Association have made their ballots public to this point. And 110 of those 134 have put David Ortiz on the ballot as a Hall of Fame worthy. That's 82.1%, which is, of course, well above the 75% that he needs to get in. But uh, at the same time, last year, at about the same point, Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds were both uh, right around 75%, and they fell to like 61% when the final vote came out. And and Pete makes a point that what what happens here and you know we we want to try to project based on these early results. It's hard because he thinks that the younger voters are the ones that are more likely to make their ballots public where the older the older guys uh, are more likely to keep it close to the vest and maybe never tell who they voted for. Um, there's a lot of call for the Hall of Fame voting uh, for it not to be anonymous. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know how I feel about that. Whether uh, I think it probably shouldn't be anonymous. I think if you have a vote, you should be proud to have a vote. Hell, if I had a vote for the Hall of Fame, I'd tell everybody. <laughs> you know, when I worked in college athletics, I was a voter for the John Wooden Award for a number of years. I actually was one of the people that voted on who the best, you know, college basketball player in the country were. I I considered that an honor. Uh, so, and, and I didn't mind telling people who I voted for. Um, so I think if you have a vote, you know, why not? I think it should be public. Now, having said that, the when we get into the whole David Ortiz thing, and a lot, the first thing that people point to is, well, David Ortiz was named in that uh, 
you know, the early report uh, on PEDs back in 2003 where he supposedly had failed a drug test. And as we've said, you know, we come to find out that there were actually uh, some false positives on that. It was just a survey test. And all that test was, by the way, they were going to do it for the players to find out. And, and it was with the MLB Players Association approval. And it was simply going to be that if the percentage of this survey test was over a certain threshold, that then the Players Association would agree to random PED testing. But then we find out that Ortiz's sample was actually retested later and tested negative. So the first test was probably a false positive, and there were a number of rows, and uh, the commissioner pointed that out uh, and said that, look, you know, we shouldn't necessarily be holding this against David Ortiz. And um, so, but that's the first thing that people point to is about the fact that, that uh, everybody always said, oh, he's cheating because he was named in this. You know, it's no different than Mike Piazza or Jeff Bagwell or Jeff Kent or anybody else's name that was, or, you know, that was ever uh, linked to PEDs and never proven and guys that never failed a drug test because they didn't have to take one. You know, uh, other, you know the guys that were caught up in that Balco thing, you know, they're <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot harder for them to, to deny it. You know, guys like A-Rod and, and Bonds. Uh, but, to me, it's not even the PED thing that's the issue, and, and what's becoming the bigger issue is the designated hitter, the fact that uh, 88% of David Ortiz's plate appearances in baseball were as a designated hitter. That would be the most for any player who is in the Hall of Fame. Now, Edgar Martinez got in. but It took him a long time, but Edgar Martinez finally got in. And his it was his were at like 71.5%. Frank Thomas. We all acknowledge that Frank Thomas was a clear Hall of Famer. But over half of his at-bats were as a designated hitter. 50, 56.5% of his at-bats were as a designated hitter. Jim Tomey in the Hall of Fame, 47%. Paul Molitor, 44%. You know, they all, you know, look, Frank Thomas was more a designated hitter than he was a first baseman, especially at the end of his career when he was the size of a dirigible. A very well-built dirigible, but he he's a massive human being. And he spent more time as a DH than he did as a first baseman at the end of his career. You know, yet we have guys like a certain columnist from Philadelphia. Uh, Pete doesn't say who it is, and I have to admit I did not see this column, so I don't know who wrote it. But uh, Pete said that there was a columnist out of Philadelphia that simply said no designated hitters. He will not vote for a DH for the Hall of Fame. Um, look, here's the thing. The DH is a legitimate position in baseball, and it has been for almost 50 years. You know, it's not like this is some new, like, you know, we just designated a, a, a new position, like, uh, you know, like in softball where we had a fourth outfielder, you know, the short fielder. You know, this isn't that. 
This is we've had a DH since the 70s. So how you know, so how can we say that guys who played in that era aren't eligible for the Hall of Fame simply because they didn't play the field? It's not their fault there's a DH. Because I guarantee you, ladies and gentlemen, that with David Ortiz's offensive prowess, no matter what his shortcomings might be in the field, they would have found a way to play him if he had to play the field. There is no question about that. Look, there are guys now or and guys in the past that are in the Hall of Fame that were not great fielders. Right? You know, you know, a lot of them were just average fielders. Some of them were not great, but their performances at the plate and in clutch situations and things they did to, you know, the awards that they won make them Hall of Famers. You know, and people will also point to, well, you know, uh, David Ortiz didn't win an MVP. Well, yeah, but MVPs, you know, it's again, it's it's that bias against designated hitters. DHs are not going to win MVPs. But when you look at the numbers that he has, how can you not put him in? And this isn't, this is not just a Boston Red Sox fan sticking up for you know his uh, his favorite team's player. How can you? objectively look at what that man did in his career and say he doesn't belong in the Hall of Fame. You know, and there are the, the, the argument you could use is, well, look at what Barry Bonds did. He's not in the Hall of Fame. Look at what Roger Clemens did. Look what A-Rod did. Look, I get it. And and I I have... It's easier for me with the PED thing, pre-testing. When we didn't have drug tests, if you were suspected but you never failed a drug test because there weren't any or at the end of your career you still didn't fail drug tests or you were not, uh, you know, securely and 100% without fail linked to PEDs, how can you keep them out? You know, people could say all they want about Roger Clemens. Roger Clemens didn't fail drug tests. He was never you know, never implicated. You know, his former trainer tried to say he did this, he did that. You know, and Roger Clemens was accused of lying to Congress. He was accused of perjury. All this. You know what? He defended himself, and he got off on all those charges. This guy defended himself. So I, to me, again, Roger Clemens belongs in the Hall of Fame. I have less. I don't have empathy for guys like A. Rod who were caught red-handed. Manny Ramirez should never get in the Hall of Fame. He didn't fail just one drug test. He failed multiple ones. He never gets in the Hall of Fame. If there's drug tests and you get caught, you're done. You know, Pete, Ryan Braun retired from the Milwaukee Brewers. Ryan Braun had some great, you know, great seasons. But he got caught cheating. He's never getting in the Hall of Fame. I don't care. So if you fail the drug test, you're out, period. David Ortiz never failed a drug test. David Ortiz is one of the greatest clutch hitters in the history of baseball. Just look at the numbers, period. And as Dave Massey just points out on Facebook, pitchers don't get into the Hall of Fame 
for their hitting. That is correct. <laughs> they 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 do one thing. They throw the baseball. So since when does being a completely well-rounded – look, there are pitchers in the Hall of Fame that were brutal fielders that couldn't that couldn't field their position at all. Look, pitchers that can field their position, oh, my God, what a great advantage that is. A guy like Greg Maddox, great fielder. You know, guys that can field their position, wonderful. But there are pitchers that couldn't – ball gets hit back at them, Jesus, they're diving out of the way. They're not fielding anything. They're ducking cover. Well, we don't hear people holding their fielding or their hitting against pitchers. So why are we going to hold the fact that David Ortiz wasn't a great first baseman? Right? But he did what he was hired to do. He was hired to hit the baseball. Pitchers were hired to throw the ball. So how can, you know, there is no, look, and may, it gets even worse, I guess, when you have a player now in baseball like Shohei Otani, and everybody says, oh, Shohei Otani, he can do everything. Oh, well, we can't hold that lens up to every player and say everybody needs to be like this guy or you're not a Hall of Famer. And 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 for the, whoever this columnist was in Philadelphia that wrote, no DHs get in the Hall of Fame, again, idiot. Um, so... There's uh, Pete said there's 300. They estimate there was 392 votes cost uh, cast this year. So for David Ortiz to get in, he needs 294 of them. We know he's got 110 in his pocket right now with only 134 votes uh, so far. So that would mean if Pete's math is correct, there's 258 votes to go. And David Ortiz needs 184 of those 258 that are left to get into the Hall of Fame. And I am going to tell you that if he doesn't get in on the first ballot, it's criminal. Absolutely criminal. Uh, So, you know, and look, uh, and this isn't about Red Sox versus Yankees or anything like this, but I'm going to tell you this. Derek Jeter's a Hall of Famer, right? David Ortiz is a better hitter than 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 Derek Jeter ever was. And David Ortiz had more clutch hits in his career than D- Derek Jeter ever did. This isn't saying Derek Jeter wasn't a great player, wasn't a Hall of Famer. He is. Okay? But, you know, uh, just because Derek Jeter played a field. And Derek Jeter wasn't the greatest shortstop in history. Okay? You know, uh, he was average, maybe a little bit better than average. He made some great plays, but you know, he wasn't. He, he was not Ozzy Smith. He wasn't even Omar Vizquel. Omar Vizquel, another guy in the Hall of Fame ballots that's never getting in, especially after the crap that's happened after he got out because of the whole morals thing and all that. He's probably never getting in. But you know, he was so Derek Jeter wasn't the greatest shortstop ever in terms of his fielding ability. There's guys in the Hall of Fame that are way better than he was. But he was a, a great, well-rounded player. But David Ortiz was a better hitter than Derek Jeter ever was. So, uh, please, you know, don't try to no, – let's not try to say, well, you know, it's, he was a DH. It doesn't matter. He did what he was paid to do. That's what his team 
hired him to do was to be a DH. They were like, they, look, if they had, if he was, if the Red Sox, if if suddenly baseball tomorrow said, hey, we're not, we're not only not going to have a universal DH, we're going to go back and pitchers are going to hit in both leagues. Well, first of all, Dave Massey's head would explode. But second of all, uh, you know, if David Ortiz were still playing, they would find a way to get him in the field. If uh, J.D. Martinez on the Red Sox uh, and the Red Sox suddenly no longer had a DH, you'd see him in the outfield a hell, hell of a lot more. People wouldn't be happy about it, but it is what it is. We play with the rules that we are given, and it, you know it is not fair to hold that against David Ortiz. It's 48 minutes past. Yeah, we're going to take another break. We're back in a minute. You're listening to the Wake Up Call on Sports Country. It is 50 minutes past the hour. Welcome back to the Wake Up Call here on Sports Country. One other uh, quick baseball note. Um, there still have been no talks between the Players Association and Major League Baseball. And we don't know when there are going to be any. Uh, supposedly, according to Jeff Passan, uh, Major League Baseball is in the process of uh, working on proposals to bring to the table. Well, that's big of them, considering they were the ones that locked the players out to begin with because they were afraid the players were going to strike. You know, that's part of the the whole other problem with this. If I'm Tony Clark and the Players Association, and, and you look at this and say, well, the players, are, the players are locked out by the owners. If I'm the Players Association, I'm pissed saying, hey, by locking us out, you are intimating that we don't have uh, the integrity to work in good faith and not call a strike immediately and, and, and to negotiate in good faith uh, to try to get this thing done without you locking us out. How about giving us the benefit of the doubt here? Now, that's uh, what negotiations are like, and one team, one one side is always going to play hardball. But Jeff Passan says that they're working on it, um, and I love this too. When pa- and look, Jeff Passan, you know, from ESPN, very good reporter. So I'm not trying to dump on it, but th- sometimes you know these guys because they have to fill space, right? You know, they they can't just say, well, they're working on it, and they got to they got to elaborate. And then Passan says, well, uh, you know. Uh, you know, thought is is that if uh, they don't have a deal in place by February 1st, that spring training is going to be delayed. Hey, no kidding, buddy, because pitchers and catchers were supposed to report about a week or, or a week or 10 days after that. Jeez, thank you, Mr. Rocket Science. I don't think we needed to tell you that. Oh, and by the way, if, if they don't have a deal in place by March 1st, the season's probably not starting on time. Hey, no kidding. Good Lord. You know, come on. You know, we're not stupid. Um, I still think, I believe, the season will start middle of April. I think this, they're gonna. I I think they're gonna they're gonna milk this, and they're gonna they're gonna try to play hardball for as long as they can. I think what probably happens, I think we see this settled first week of March. I hope I'm wrong. I hope it's sooner. I want baseball so badly. I can't even begin to tell you. But I think this gets settled maybe the first week of March. We spring, see spring training starting right after that. And then we go a month of spring training. Maybe five weeks, but I think probably a month. And then we start games. And... My 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 guess is the games that would have been played those first two weeks don't get made up. It'd be awful hard to do that. Um, 
that's what I think will happen. Because I think the reason that they're going to give them a solid month for spring training is if you remember when baseball shut down during the pandemic and then restarted, and they tried to have like this quick two-week spring training thing or this two-week conditioning thing to get people ready for games, and we found people getting hurt because they weren't in condition, they weren't ready. So I think baseball will be a lot more careful this time uh, when it comes to restarting it if they do have a spring training. So we shall see. Watched a couple of pretty good games last night, or actually I caught the tail end of one of them. Um, nice win for Notre Dame men's basketball last night. They upset North Carolina. Now, they, I, they beat North Carolina 78-73 last night, and they say upset them. You know, maybe it wasn't as big an upset because North Carolina was without uh, Dawson Garcia last night. That I tell you what, this kid's great. He's uh, uh, 6'11", and, uh, but can play inside and outside. Uh, he scores in double figures. He's second-leading rebounder for him. Uh, he suffered a concussion Sunday against Boston College. They also had a couple of guys out with COVID protocols. So they were a little bit shorthanded, but this was a hell of a game. Uh, and North Carolina uh, was 10-2 and coming into this one in uh, – uh, Notre Dame, not the strongest in the ACC, 7-5. and five. Uh, But they come up with the win, and they're 5-0 and oh on their home court this year. This was a great game. Uh, Nate Lazuski, a couple of big, big three-pointers late in this game. Uh, North Carolina hadn't led since about the 12-minute mark in the first half. Took a lead uh, on an Armando Baycott uh, basket with uh, about two minutes left, and then Notre Dame took over. Uh, Lazuski two big threes and a great win for North Carolina or for, excuse me for Notre Dame over North Carolina last night 78-73 and then I caught uh, the last period and a half of the Penguins Blues hockey game last night Sidney Crosby and Evan Rodriguez goals 12 seconds apart uh, and the one by Rodriguez an absolute blast a one timer off a of pat holy smokes this thing had to be going 110 miles an hour uh, they come back. Uh, to beat the St. Louis Blues last night, 5-3. The Blues, with a win, would have moved into first place in the Central Division over Nashville. Uh, but uh, a great finish for the Pittsburgh Penguins in that game last night. And the Celtics lose last night to the Spurs, 99-97. Uh, tough one. Jalen Brown missed a layup um, at the end of regulation. that would have sent it into overtime. But the most notable thing in this one, Greg Popovich became the first coach in NBA history last night uh, to coach 2,000 games with the same team. 2,000 games with the same team. Uh, one last note before we get out of here. Uh, another history note because I'm a history nerd. Uh, the oldest veteran of World War II passed away yesterday. Uh, Lawrence Brooks, 112 years old. Not only the uh, oldest World War II veteran, he was thought to maybe be the oldest man in the country. Uh, African-American. He was in the segregated forces, uh, served in Australia. Uh, actually came under enemy fire. He was uh, on Owen Island. Uh, they got bombed by the Japanese several times. And uh, uh, But a guy that uh, got drafted into the Army in 1940 uh, and was in the uh, Black 91st Engineer General Services Regiment uh, stationed in Australia, a guy who had, uh, from all accounts, a great outlook on life, uh, always smiling and laughing, um, lost. He lived in New Orleans, lost his home uh, in Katrina. His wife died shortly after that. Um, had to be evacuated from his home's roof via helicopter. Uh, he was in his late 90s when that happened. Uh, but a guy that the, the World War II Museum started throwing him a birthday party, uh, starting with his 105th birthday. Uh, and he said his favorite part was always watching a group called the Victory Bells. They performed music from the 1940s. And uh, 
and then in the uh, during the pandemic, the museum still organized a party for him. They organized instead. They had a parade that went in front of his house with brass bands and stuff, and uh, uh, and he would get up and dance. Even at 112 years old, at his last uh, birthday, uh, when they uh, had the parade in front of his house, he was up and dancing. So good for him. Uh, a hell of a run. Uh, a guy that uh, uh, served our country and lived to be 112 years old. Rest well. Lawrence Brooks. That's going to do it for us here this morning. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the Wake Up Call. Dan Zampano will join us. We'll talk NFL football uh, all show tomorrow. We leave it this morning with some music from Luke Bryant. Most people are good. Have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to the Wake Up Call on Sports Country.